Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 57, Roanoke. Today we begin where it all started. Yes, after 40 episodes away, we are returning to the South. Carolina has the distinction of being both one of the first and one of the last colonies. It was indeed the only English colony of the Elizabethan era, but it would also not take its final form until the latter half of the 17th century. This gave it a quite unusual history during the early colonial period, which we can begin to get into today. Following the invasion of the New World by Columbus in 1492, the Europeans began to probe numerous areas. Despite the odd venture by the Portuguese into Brazil, the Americas were immediately dominated by the Spanish. This was confirmed by the 1494 Treaty of Tordesillas, which gave the Spanish authority over all of the Americas aside from a bit of Brazil, which belonged to the Portuguese. As I'm sure you can imagine, a lot of people were not particularly fond of this treaty. For one, there was the small issue of the people already living there, but they didn't really count as people. Of far more importance at the time was that this upset the other European powers, France and England. Both of these powers were curious about the New World, but neither was in a position to do anything about it just yet. The English made probes around the North American continent, with the expedition of John Carbot in 1497, and inspired by the voyage of Magellan, Francois I of France decided to fund an expedition. Giovanni de Verrazzano travelled to the North American landmass, and on March 21st, 1524, he sighted land around Cape Fear. Verrazzano found the land in good quality, in what is the first description of what would become North Carolina. Interestingly, Verrazzano made a mistake while in North America, which would go on to confuse cartographers and explorers for the next 150 years. And is something we've dealt with many times, actually. I just haven't been able to find the origin of the mistake until now. It's been a frequent element in our narrative that Europeans have been certain that the Pacific was just beyond the Atlantic, that this wasn't a huge continent. It would take them a long time to understand just how big a mistake this was. But there is the question of why they thought this was the case. The answer is that Verrazzano landed at North Carolina, specifically at the island chain just off the coast. He saw the water on the other side of these islands, but couldn't see the mainland beyond it. So, he assumed that this body of water was the Pacific Ocean. In reality, it was the Pamlico and Albemarle Sounds, a body of water not 20 miles wide. He reported his findings and came to the conclusion that Carolina was an isthmus, and that the Pacific was just beyond it. I'll put on the website a 1529 map drawn by his brother, Girolamo de Verrazzano, which makes it clear to see just what I'm talking about. And, as other maps copied this one, it's easy to understand why so many people believed 
that it would not be difficult to find the Pacific from Virginia. Verrazano was eager to conduct further exploration of the area, but he was unable to. Francois I was preoccupied with his wars, and Henry VIII was dealing with the Reformation. Neither wanted to fund an expedition to the area when they had more pressing matters to deal with. The expedition was, however, not without consequence. It stirred the Spanish, who had been primarily focused on their conquest of New Spain, and solidifying their position in the Caribbean. All of a sudden, they realised that their new colonies could be threatened if another European power had the chance to get a foothold, so this must be prevented. And, as the 1520s advanced, they began to send expeditions to the region. There was even an attempt to found a colony on the Cape Fear River, but this colony was beset with problems. One of their ships was lost as they arrived in the region, they settled in an area that was swampy, and thus many fell sick. They pressed on, but over time they realised that they had lost more provisions in the sunken ship than originally thought. They tried finding a better location, but were unable to do so, and soon winter was upon them. They returned back to Santo Domingo. Of the 500 to set sail, only 150 were still alive. It had been a disaster, and the Spanish resolved that it was simply not worth making a settlement that far north. It must be said that the region was not abandoned completely. The Spanish might have lost interest in founding a civilian settlement, but they were curious about what resources the area might hold. In 1539, an expedition was sent out northwards from Florida, commanded by Hernando de Santo. De Santo reached North Carolina by the spring of 1540. He was unable to find anything, but thought the region seemed promising. The expedition then began to travel westwards, eventually reaching the Mississippi in 1541. It spread knowledge about the south of the North American continent, which was still largely unknown, but de Santo greatly exaggerated the size of the mountains he found, and put off future explorers and settlers from travelling to the region. The Spanish continued to make occasional voyages northwards, even travelling into the Chesapeake, but this was only visiting. The French began to be briefly interested in founding a colony in South Carolina, and they tried but failed to establish a settlement. This, again, stirred the Spanish into action. They set about exploring the region in more detail, but once again determined that the country was a wilderness of no value. This action is a bit of a microcosm for Spain with regards to North America in the 16th century. Spain did not want North America, aside from her colony in Florida, but just because she didn't want it didn't mean that any of the other countries could have it either. But other countries did want it. England was jealous of the riches Spain had acquired and wanted a piece of the action. This was the age of the great privateers, Drake, Cavendish and Raleigh. We discussed this in the very early episodes. Raleigh was interested in setting up a new colony, 
and in 1578, Elizabeth gave a patent to Raleigh's half-brother, Sir Humphrey Gilbert, to found a colony. That year, he sailed to the Indies, but he was unable to do anything worthwhile. He tried setting up a colony in Newfoundland in 1583, but this failed. He gave up after a month and tried finding another location, but one of his ships sank while he was sailing, and he became discouraged, turning home. He was then caught up in a storm and died. In 1584, Elizabeth decided to renew the charter, but this time she did it in Raleigh's name. He sent an expedition party later that year, which found Roanoke. They stayed there for six weeks, found that the land was good, and then set sail back home to report their findings. Raleigh was greatly excited, as was the Queen. She named the country Virginia, after herself. The next year, 1585, was when a colony was to be established along military lines with 600 people, although most travelled back later that year, and a force of only 100 or so was left behind. Drake arrived in 1586 with some supplies, but these were not enough to keep the company going along. Roanoke was abandoned. Although Raleigh's supplies to the colony just missed Drake leaving. Perhaps a permanent English presence in the region could have been created 20 years earlier, were it not for those five days. This new party decided to leave behind only a handful of men at Roanoke, and this didn't go particularly well. Raleigh made another attempt to establish a colony in 1587. There was again the problem of reinforcing the colony, as the English became rather distracted by the Spanish Armada in 1588. By the time they were finally able to check on the colony in 1590, it had been abandoned, giving the mystery of the Roanoke colony, and what happened to the English settlers. It seems that the Powhatans probably attacked it at some point, although a few of the English might have survived for some time. They were never found. Raleigh's rights to found a new colony expired in 1590, so it was vital to him that his colony still exist, because otherwise he would not be able to continue his plans, but it was not found. Nothing happened after this. Raleigh held the rights to the region, but he couldn't found a new settlement. Raleigh's hopes were finally doomed with the death of Queen Elizabeth in 1603. The new King James was not a fan of Raleigh, believing that he had been working with the Spanish to prevent his ascension to the English throne. Within eight months of Elizabeth's death, Raleigh had been found guilty of treason. This was crucial in the story of the colonisation of America. Nothing had been able to happen due to the odd legal situation of the land belonging to Raleigh and a colony which half existed, but when Raleigh was found guilty, he lost his rights and control of the area was essentially reset and power returned to the crown. It was this that allowed James to create a new colony, Jamestown and Virginia. Indeed, the experience of Raleigh was vital in the survival of this new colony. If you will allow me to quote for a moment Colonial North Carolina, a history by Hugh Leffler 
and William Powell, quote, Raleigh's attempts to establish an English colony in America were costly in terms of both his own personal fortune and the considerable loss of lives. Surely those who were brave enough to risk their future in the New World hoped that what they did would be a future benefit to England, but they could not have known this with any certainty. The knowledge they gained of the natural resources of the region was of inestimable value to those who followed. Their glowing reports and encouraging promises for the future ultimately bore fruit in the 1606 Charter of the Virginia Company. Before issuing this charter, which was to establish the first English colony, King James sought the advice of men who had worked with Raleigh and who had invested their own personal funds in his ventures. Once he had assurances from these individuals that England would undoubtedly benefit from future investments in the area, he granted the new charter, under which Jamestown was planted and eventually survived. End quote. You can go back to episode 2 if you want the details on that story. Indeed, a lot of what I've just said we've already covered, but this time I want to focus on the land to the south, the land that was forgotten with the foundation of Virginia. The charter given to the Virginia Company covered the land between 34 and 45 degrees latitude north. This was the land between Bangor, Maine, in the north, and Cape Fear in the south. We gave enough detail about what happened with Jamestown that I don't really need to go into any of that, at least not in the way that this refresher of Roanoke material was necessary. But while all this was going on, the land to the south wasn't quite forgotten. John Smith wrote of the area, calling it Old Virginia. In fact, it would be explored in greater detail. Exploring Old Virginia wasn't the first priority of the Jamestown settlers, but it was a lot easier for them to do than it was to send an expedition from London. As Jamestown became more settled, they looked around the coast, and the pine forests of Old Virginia were of great interest, as were the stores of tar and pitch. England had long been reliant on such material from Sweden, and the chance to reduce this dependency was certainly valuable. The natives seemed friendly and eager to trade. It was also possible to get two harvests in a season. There seemed to be things of value here that the Spanish had either not noticed or not cared about. Perhaps something could have been done more speedily were it not for the horrific management of the Virginia Company. You'll recall from the early episodes how much of a mess all of this was, so that in 1624 the company's charter was invalidated and Virginia became the first royal colony. This brings us to 1625 and the death of James. The beauty of covering all this material from multiple viewpoints means that we can become quite familiar with the characters and with their personalities. That this is the first time Charles is appearing in this particular narrative doesn't mean we need to completely reintroduce him. We've already talked quite a lot about him, so what happened next isn't actually that surprising. 
The Stuarts were one of the absolutist royal families of the early modern era. They were just one of among many. There were the Bourbons, the Mughals, and the Hohenzollers, to name just a few. The absolutist royal family would be undone by the Enlightenment, and the English Revolution against the Stuarts is an early example. Charles, as yet unaware that he was destined for execution, began his reign trying to extend the reaches of his personal control, and so, in 1629, Charles gave a royal charter to his Attorney General, Sir Robert Heath. This created a province located between 31 and 36 degrees latitude north, an area with a southern limit 30 miles north of the Florida state line, and extending as far as the Albemarle Sound. Heath was the sole proprietor of this territory. He would have large feudal powers, he could raise an army, and collect taxes. He was only subject to the king, a point which was made clear by the stipulation that there was always to be a 20-ounce gold crown, just in case the monarch decided to visit. And then, just so nobody could miss the point, that he was just a super powerful and fantastic guy, Charles decided to name the province after himself. No longer would it be Old Virginia. This land was now Carolina, or, as it is known today, Carolina. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can find more information, such as the map I was talking about earlier, at the website. Just go to thehistoryofpodcast.com. While there, you can also sign up for membership if you are so inclined by clicking on the PayPal subscription button. You can also continue the conversation on social media. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast and on twitter at history jamie you can send me an email if you have any questions comments or concerns the address is the history of podcast at gmail.com join me next time when we look at the history of this new royal province carolina thanks for listening (laughs) 